0: The game of Quidditch is 90% mental. The other half is magical. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for bandwagon
1: fans. Gryffindor in possession. No, Slytherin in possession. No, Gryffindor back in possession. And it's Katie Bell. Katie Bell for Gryffindor with the Quaffle. She's streaking up the field. 30-0. Take that, you dirty, cheating. Jordan, if you can't commentate in an unbiased way... I'm telling it like it is, Professor.
2: I'm Heather Price-Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome to episode 22 of The Quibbler.
0: And welcome back, Heather. Yeah, we, here we, I am. Yeah, we missed you last week, but Richard filled in ably. Yeah, I he think. was an
2: admirable fill-in. <laughs> I absolutely agree.
0: What'd you think of the episode?
2: Um, I loved it, actually. I thought that you guys were very funny. I... Laughed my ass off when Richard said that muggles were going to have their dirty feet all over <laughs> wizard's sacred planet Mars. Uh,
0: <laughs> More sacred to centaurs, I guess. Yeah, but, uh, it
2: was still, that was a classic Richardism, and I cackled gleefully in my hotel room in Los Angeles. What was
0: it like to get the podcast like uh, like any other old? Like a muggle? Like a muggle.
2: No, it was fine. I felt kind of relaxed, actually. You guys did a great job. I missed it. I missed making it.
0: Well, we are back.
2: Yeah, and here we are just patting ourselves on the back for... Yep,
0: just uh, congratulations to us for getting another episode out. For congratulations doing on
2: doing something so, so normal. normal so, say. what's happening this week? Let me tell you. This week's chapters are the Quidditch final and Professor Trelawney's prediction. So we are speeding rapidly toward the first of two climaxes of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So, in this podcast, you will hear some spoilers, lots of spoilers, you will hear probably even more cursing, and you will hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are unnecessary roughness, peaking early, internalized misogyny, unsatisfying reunions, and having an axe to grind. Do you want to tell us what happened this week?
0: Yes, I do. In this week's chapters, the entire school is eagerly anticipating the Quidditch final. I guess it's the final match of the season, because it's more of a round-robin tournament. But uh, not to belabor the details too much there, everyone's anticipating the final match between Gryffindor and Slytherin. Slytherin is leading the tournament by 200 points. That means if Gryffindor's up by more than 50 points when they catch the snitch, they win the Quidditch Cup for the first time, since the legendary Charlie Weasley was Gryffindor Seeker. So, there are some... there's some foul play even before the game. The Slytherins are trying to trip Harry, who has to go around escorted. He's basically in, like, Quidditch Seeker protection program that Wood establishes, but you know, he manages to make it to the game with all his bones intact, which, I mean, They would regrow them anyway if they broke a bone. So, like, tripping, I don't know. Tripping doesn't seem like an effective way to sabotage. It
2: takes a while to regrow them.
0: Yeah, that's true. So,
2: I mean, they might have to, like, postpone it, which seems like they don't do. So, they'd probably forfeit, because nothing is fair.
0: (laughs) There is an extremely physical, dirty Quidditch game between Gryffindor and Slytherin. Think, like, 1980s NBA. The Slytherins are, like, the bad boy Pistons throwing elbows, uh, just getting real physical. Fouls galore. But our heroes do indeed triumph in this gritty contest of uh, of Quidditch wills. Uh, there's not really much else to say except that uh, they win. Harry feels like he could produce the biggest Patronus of all time. He's that happy. His elation lasts about a week because then it's exam time, so everybody is real stressed out around Hogwarts because you know it's like time for magic tests. they have to turn uh tea kettles into tortoises, which is apparently extremely difficult. Meanwhile, am I skipping something here? Yeah, what did I skip Buckbeak? Oh, there's this whole drama with Buckbeak that's still going on that uh you might have to help me out here a bit. I'm like losing the thread. I'm thinking about too much quidditch <laughs> uh. <laughs>
2: Basically, Buckbeak has well. When we
0: yeah, when we left off, Buckbeak was about to be had. He had, he lost, had lost his, his case. There case. was going to be
2: an appeal. It became pretty clear by the various scheduling of the executioner to arrive with the appeals court that <laughs> they had no real intention of letting Buckbeak off the proverbial hook slash axe. Yeah. So.
0: But in the meantime, this has mended Ron and Hermione's friendship because they found common cause in helping Buckbeak win his case. And Hermione is basically at burnout phase. She even, they go to a Professor Trelawney's class and Hermione just reaches her breaking point. She says, this is bullshit. I'm out of here. Kicks open the trap door and bails, which fulfills Professor Trelawney's prediction that around Easter, one of their number would leave them forever. And that, like, exit probably would have gone viral if Wizards had YouTube, but... Uh, yeah, it's like that I mean, guy that um,
2: <laughs> that uh, opened the inflatable slide on the airline, that disgruntled flight attendant, was just like, I'm out, motherfuckers! That's what Hermione was up so to. So
0: all, all this is happening in the run-up to uh, the Quidditch game, which I just recapped, but, uh, you know, this is kind of one of those bridge chapters where uh, various, uh, you know... Lots of transitions. Lots of transitions. Things are happening. Hermione hauls off and slaps Malfoy in the face because he's gloating about Buckbeak's impending execution, which very much impresses Ron. Anyway, fast forward to exams. Everybody's really busy. Ron has taken over the bulk of the work trying to help Buckbeak win his appeal, which, as we mentioned, does not look likely given the fact that the executioner showed up with with the court. (laughs) (laughs) It's like that line in Back to the Future too. The justice system moves swiftly in the future because we've abolished all lawyers. Except it's not the future.
2: That was deep tracks.
0: It's the 90s. (laughs) And it's a medieval, pseudo-medieval society. Anyway, finals are finaling. During the Divinations Final, Harry thinks he sees a hippogriff in the crystal ball. Professor Trelawney's like, is it dead? Does it have its head off? Is Hagrid weeping? And Harry's like, Jesus Christ, like, get out of, like, this is so inappropriate right now. But Harry's like, no, it's flying away. It's free. Professor Trelawney seems super bummed because, you know, she's into, like, carnage and, uh, like, dark shit, you know. But, uh, as Harry's about to leave the stuffy divinations classroom, he hears a sharp voice and it's Professor Trelawney who's in some kind of, like, under, she's not under a spell, I was gonna say she's having a spell, but that implies like I guess she's having a sp-
2: No, she's like in a trance. Yeah,
0: she's in a trance, and she says that tonight the servant of the Dark Lord who's been chained these twelve years will break free and rejoin his master and that Lord Voldemort will rise again. Harry's like, whoa can't I just have a normal school year? <laughs> Arnold status from like, uh
2: <laughs> I knew I should have stayed home today from
0: Magic School Bus <laughs> He goes down the trapdoor. He meets up with Ron and Hermione. He's going to tell them this crazy shit that just happened. But no, they found out that Buckbeak has lost his appeal. So they sneak out to go visit Hagrid. They can't believe it. Hagrid is just like... Hagrid. They go to Hagrid's hut under cover of the invisibility cloak. Hagrid is a man in shock. He is dropping milk jugs. And it just generally traumatized. Hermione discovers she's going to get a new milk jug, Scabbers in the cabinet. So Scabbers, back from the dead, he's freaking the fuck out. She hands him to Ron who conceals him in the pocket. They have to leave because the Minister of Magic and the Executioner are coming down with Dumbledore for Buckbeak's execution. They leave, and in the distance, they hear the unmistakable swish of an axe, and they realize that Buckbeak has been put to death an innocent hippogriff, and that's where we are this week.
2: Yeah, also the whole time Scabbers is losing his shit. I know. And that's basically why they overhear the murder, because Ron is like, wait, I have to put my rat in my pocket, because Ron is a fucking moron. Like, let it go, Ron. And, like, thank God he doesn't, although why would he know this? But it's like, Ron, the rat is fine. Like, can we please run away from this incredibly traumatizing auditory experience? I would rather not hear a beheading today, is what Harry is thinking. I have heard my parents die enough this year. Let's not add to it. So I guess first, it's time for sports. It's
0: time for sports. So we finally reached the final Quidditch game of the season. And, you know, Gryffindor's got a pretty good team this year, I'd say. Uh (laughs)
2: Lee Jordan says it's the best. It's widely considered to be the best, one of the best teams in Hogwarts history.
0: So let's talk about, Lee Let's talk Jordan. about
2: good old Lee.
0: And he's eth- been
2: my unsung hero in the past. Yep. I stand by that firmly.
0: We have to talk about ethics in Quidditch journalism.
2: <laughs> I'm so glad you're calling it that.
0: So Lee Jordan.
2: It's about ethics in Quidditch journalism. <laughs> that was me being a Quidditch Gate. Bro. Quidditch Gate. Quafflegate. Quafflegate.
0: Quafflegate. That's uh, what we're gonna
2: call our movement of mouth breather, dude bros.
0: Slytherins.
2: Basically Slytherins who think that Lee Jordan is like somehow profoundly sullying the game because he's like fucking honest about what douche nozzles they are.
0: He's a homer, as they say in sports uh, sports terminology.
2: Okay, but the similarity I would say to Gamergate is that he is genuinely telling it like it is because the Slytherins are shitbirds.
0: <laughs> so Lee is giving this hilarious commentary on the game and calling out the Slytherins for their dirty play and McGonagall says you have to comment in an unbiased way and Lee says I'm just saying what's happening professor so what do you think should sports announcers uh, should they be homers or should they be like right down the middle unbiased
2: I have no dog or, in this fight or do you
0: think it matters I literally oh, you're don't the wrong care at to all ask. okay so Richard and I are gonna have to discuss this in okay, uh, the okay well, next t- you tell me what hours. you think uh, I guess
2: that it's boring to listen to biased commentary on something that you can see with your eyes. Like, if you want to know what's actually happening, like, Lee Jordan is not all that helpful. Although, I would agree with Lee in this scene. Like, he's not being dishonest. Like, he's being colorful.
0: It is we. It- it- Lee's breaking a few kind of tenets of sports journalism. I was a sports reporter once. Many years ago.
2: When you met, when I met you, you were and a sports reporter. Yeah,
0: it was considered, it's considered very poor form to cheer in the press box. You That's don't do that. fair. You don't do that. That's fair. So they should But what have... if you
2: were cheering against Satan and his minions?
0: <laughs> so uh, how did Lee get this job?
2: Lee's actually really good at this job. He's like, amazing
0: Lee's, at it. But, Lee uh, knows
2: Quidditch really well, you, and Lee has a great voice, and Lee has a great stage presence. I think Lee's great at it's this just job. Funny.
0: You, you'd think they'd pull in like maybe a more neutral party to call the uh, Gryffindor games, but uh,
2: well, but it's like they don't have any kind of journalism program. Like they don't have any way of training these kids. <laughs> so it's like they've got one person capable of doing. Wow. this. Wow,
0: actually, if there was like a school, a wizarding school newspaper, and like wizard journalism class. I would love to see how that, uh, how that. Yeah, that would be out.
2: fascinating. We're, we're
0: going to see many more Wizarding Journal. Well, one more, a big Wizarding journalist in particular, next book. So we're going to talk a lot more about. Uh, well, but there's about the press,
2: regardless of Rita herself. Like, there's lots to talk about about the Wizarding press. But this, okay, specifically Wizarding sports reporting as it is at Hogwarts. Like, I don't really. I mean, I think Lee is the only person who has been trained to do this job. Like, I guess they could train like a Hufflepuff.
0: Yeah, but that would suck.
2: Word. I think everybody knows that. And, like, Lee brings... I mean, it's also one of those things where, like, people's favorite sports reporter, like, says a lot about them. And, like, I mean, I don't know this from experience because I don't have a lot of stake in sports reporting, but I feel like I know people who will, like, throw down for their favorite, like, old-school, like, sports talk radio show. No, I was just
0: thinking, I was just thinking, growing up in Phoenix, we had Al McCoy, who would call the Phoenix Suns games, and... Totally biased for uh, for the Phoenix Suns, obviously. Just like your local like F- your local like radio guy,
2: right? And people love that like, guy. It's so yeah, I think Lee Jordan is admirable at this particular job. I also think that he, well, you can see even like the game against Ravenclaw, like he's more fair. The Slytherins are shit birds,
0: yeah, just and a, he is
2: calling that appropriately.
0: He Calls it like he sees it,
2: and like I mean, he doesn't. I think he's way less of a homer in games against teams that are not like the soul of evil on broomsticks. So
0: Lee is not normalizing Slytherin, basically.
2: Basically, hashtag don't normalize. hashtag Now more than ever. <laughs> um. Another
0: thing about this game is it actually seems like kind. Of, it seems like this was kind of a sh- shitty game to watch if you were there. It's actually a really exciting chapter, but. It's not played particularly well. Well,
2: okay, so that comes down to, like, whether it's more fun to watch a game that goes completely fucking off the rails or a game that's played with, like, skill and grace and I mean, dexterity.
0: Somebody takes a club to the face. I forget. Is it Angelina? Who get, who gets, like, literally clubbed?
2: Uh, Well, Marcus Flynn gets <laughs> bludgered in the face by one of the twins, which is Baller. But okay, it's like, think about hockey. Like, I feel like half of people go to hockey because they think hockey is like an interesting and well-played sport, and half of people go because it's, there's fights. So like, this seems like a really fun game to watch if you're there for like the brawls. And if you care about like, point, nicely, beautifully played sports ball, like sure. Like if you're a purist, I guess this is not a fun Quidditch game. It's extreme. This is the only game in the whole series except for maybe the actual World Cup where I was like on the edge of my seat with the actual sports writing. Like I think this is a wonderfully written scene. It's extremely fucking exciting. Malfoy literally holds on to the end of Harry's broom like a tiny fucking baby trying to like get his mom to like stay in the grocery aisle with the chocolates. <laughs> he is such a little bitch and that's such a perfect like... That little tiny action is such a perfect encapsulation of his character and I love that she includes it because it's not even like strategic or and it's not even strong. Like A he's not going all out and like clubbing someone in the face which is rude but cool. But B he's not playing well. He's just like I'm not gonna let you get it either. Like, he sucks, and that's such a good moment of him just sucking.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: And Lee almost curses at him, and then McGonagall Yeah, he screams. says, you
0: cheating b dash.
2: And you think he wants to say bitch, no, and I he, think it's probably bugger. It's probably
0: bugger. It's not, you cheating bitch. <laughs> I
2: wish it were. <laughs> but <laughs> there bugger is a, seems there, more there is likely. There's one part
0: where it says Lee swore so loudly that McGonagall... Almost had to take the mic away from him, the magical microphone. Man, I don't know what high school you went to, but if some if the like student announcer was like swearing, I th- I think the mic would come away right away.
2: I didn't go to a high school where murder ball was on the that's true. playing field. Yeah,
0: just just football. So well,
2: right. So other <laughs> murder ball, right? Muggle murder ball. Um, yo, we are alienating a lot of sports fans this episode. <laughs> just
0: a lot of just a lot of concussions. I love sports.
2: You actually, yeah, that's true. I'm not so much.
0: This chapter is really delightful. The action is exciting. The comic interplay between McGonagall and Lee Jordan. It's just a lot of fun.
2: And it's also genuinely wonderful when they win. Yes. Like, I was really excited for them. Harry deserved that win, even though he played kind of worse than he's ever played before.
0: It was It's a weirdly poorly played Quidditch game. If we're analyzing it, uh, I mean, we can't overanalyze it, because as, as we've discussed... Uh, <laughs> Quidditch is an elaborate con on sports fans, especially male sports fans.
2: But But Harry sort of doing his weird maneuver to like scatter everyone who's kind of trying to pile onto whatever chaser it is. It's Angelina. Angelina makes him almost miss the snitch. Yeah, he and like-
0: stops marking Draco to like help them score 10 points, which uh, tactically, poor decision, and the Slytherins get down by more than 50 just because they want to commit these fouls.
2: And because Oliver Wood, even though he's a psychopath, is crazy good at Quidditch, it turns out. Yeah. Like, he's a really, really, really good goalkeeper.
0: I like that he has his time to shine.
2: Oh, I do too. In this chapter. Okay, but maybe, I'm gonna give Harry some credit, maybe it's not that he wants them to score those ten points, maybe it's he th- that he thinks that they're genuinely gonna kill her.
0: Well, he did have to have a literal bodyguard for the entire week before the game. Like,
2: and what the scene is that she is moving toward the goals, and they're all bearing down on her to simultaneously basically, like, squish the quaffle out of her hands. Like, maybe he thinks they're going to hurt her.
0: Yeah, all right. So, so perhaps
2: not- valiant behavior. Regardless, if he didn't have the firebolt, they would lose. <laughs> so, that sucks. But they don't, they win. He's better than Malfoy, clearly, yeah. in that moment. So. And that's really nice. Boiled again, Malfoy. Let's talk about someone who's having a little less triumph this year. But also kind of like, uh doesn't give a shit, like, crazy eyes moment in these chapters. Hermione is a little bit off.
0: Boy, she is struggling to hang in there. She really in this is. chapter.
2: She has a couple of these moments where she does things that are really out of character. She hits Malfoy, which is like this iconic Harry Potter scene. And Ron gets a giant instant love boner. And is, like, all over that shit and thinks it's totally amazing that she hits him.
0: Maybe not a boner right away, but... But, he, like, a love like boner. A, there's a... You, you can see... You can She's, see him looking at her in a different way in this chat. It's really subtle, but in a different way. I don't this. think
2: it's subtle at all. You
0: don't think so? No.
2: I think it is really unsubtle. Okay. And...
0: I know his, he, he looks at her impressed, though. I mean, I, I it didn't read as sexual to me yet, but, like, that it could become sexual. I think sexual. they're at
2: an age where, like boy-girl interactions are sexual okay like or at least charged like that's kind of an age where like boy-girl friendships like nothing is innocent because you're just figuring out that each other are boys and girls but like
0: he is starting to notice and appreciate more for sure i mean he was earlier with the kind of keeping tabs of her her schedule but he's sort of Looking at her with a little more awe and less eye rolling. What is Hermione on about? He's
2: crazy in love with her. I think. Okay. I mean, I think he's pretty clearly like bonkers about her in these chapters. Um,
0: so he's really impressed with the, the slap, and then her crazy exit from Trelawney's class. Yeah,
2: her exit from Trelawney's classroom,
0: and her, her wanting to immediately go grab the invisibility cloak to visit. Hagrid.
2: Oh yeah so that's where Harry says that he can't go get the invisibility cloak because Snape knows where he hid it and if he's seen anywhere near the one-eyed witch like Snape he'll be in really good big trouble and Snape will search it and probably find the passageway. So Harry's like I can't go get it so Hermione's like right you can't go get it and she like she's like how do you open the witch again and they're like uh 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 descendium. And Hermione comes back like fifteen minutes later, and she's like, "Cloaks, bitch."
0: Total side note, but I ran into listener Whitney and Bryant Park last week, and she just mentioned that they really need to. St- Harry really needs to stop leaving that thing around places. Oh my
2: god, that's one <laughs> of the things I wrote down in this chapter. I was like, Harry, fucking take that thing with you everywhere. Like, why is it always lost? If there is one thing in your life, like he is constantly going and checking that his firebolt is still in his trunk. And the invisibility cloak is worth, like, 50 times, probably 5,000. It's priceless. It's a fucking
0: deathly hallow. Well,
2: okay, but even now we don't know that, but we do know that it's insanely rare. Like, conceivably you could buy another firebolt. Like, there is not another cloak like this.
0: (laughs) Anyway, anyway, just... uh,
2: (laughs) Whitney, you were so right. Like, just fucking take the cloak with you. Stop losing this priceless heirloom. Also, it belonged to his dad. You'd think he would, like, care more I guess he
0: doesn't want to go back to the... It's weird
2: that he stashed it in there, though. Like, oh, he didn't
0: want to get caught with it when Snape says, "Turn out your pockets."
2: I guess that's fair. It's still like, it's happened enough times that it's. What is the line from The Importance of Being Earnest? Losing one parent um, is something you feel sorry for. Losing two parents looks like carelessness. (laughs) That's like a little how I'm feeling about the invisibility cloak. Don't. uh... Okay, so those are Hermione's three like transgressions, or like these three moments where Hermione becomes like different in these boys
0: eyes
2: yeah yeah
0: and you have some interesting thoughts on that oof
2: I have some things to say about this um first of all it's hard because like Hermione is experiencing a certain amount of emotional catharsis by like letting out her emotions in these like really out of character and um sort of like violent like not just physically but sort of psychically or spiritually violent ways Which like I get why Harry and Ron think it's cool because like she is sort of breaking this like veneer of like control and perfection. But at the same time like she's not healthy and she's not behaving healthfully. So like in a perfect world where these weren't 12 year olds, 13 year olds, whatever, I think that like there is space to be like when someone acts really, really, really out of character even when you think it's cool like I do think there's space to be like Do you maybe want to like take a break? Like take a step back? Think about the fact that you don't hit people? Like you're not a violent person? So these chapters are more complicated for me than they were when I was a kid because I feel really sad for Hermione and I feel like she's like really not getting what she needs and like acting out is not something I think Hermione wants to be doing. Like I think that these are like pretty genuine cries for help. From someone who has completely lost the thread. And it's kind of shitty that her the people who are closest to her are like, holy shit, like Hermione just like told off the bitch teacher and like punched the bully. It's like, those aren't actually super helpful like coping strategies. Also, this is some misogynistic bullshit. Let me elaborate. All of the things that Hermione does are masculine expressions of aggression and the fact that it takes physical violence and insubordination for Ron and Harry to feel like Hermione is like cool and edgy and like finally like breaking out of her nerd box is horrifying considering how many times Hermione's like intrinsic character strengths have saved their asses. They have never been impressed when Hermione is just, like, low-key, emotionally intelligent and brilliant and fucking with it.
0: Yeah, I was- She th-
2: gets no fucking credit for that stuff.
0: I was thinking, there's an example of that in, in the Professor Trelawney's prediction chapter, where Hagrid is totally going to pieces, and Hermione is keeping a lid on her own emotions to- make tea so something normal will be happening. She and she's is low-key re-
2: doing all of the emotional labor in that scene. Yeah. The boys do nothing. Really they fucking sit that. there. Yeah.
1: Hermione, who had been rummaging in Hagrid's cupboard for another milk jug, let out a small, quickly stifled sob. She straightened up with the new jug in her hands, fighting back tears. We'll stay with you too, Hagrid, she began, but Hagrid shook his shaggy head you to go back up to the castle i told you i don't want you watching and you shouldn't be down here anyway if fudge and dumbledore catch you out without permission harry you'll be in big trouble silent tears were now streaming down hermione's face but she hid them from hagrid bustling around making tea
2: and she gets no credit for that That is um, a moment of immense personal strength and character that neither Ron nor Harry is capable of bringing to the table. Right, she is making sure that Hagrid doesn't see her crying so that her tears don't like set him off more. She really smoothly, when he shatters the milk jug, she's the only one that jumps up and is like, I got it Hagrid, like you're fine, sit down. And like finds the other milk jug. Like she's doing all the work in that scene and getting no credit, you know? And it would never even occur to Ron or Harry or even Hagrid to be like, let's think about the gender dynamics in this scene. Like, the okay, only... Hagrid's not going
0: to stop to think about the gender dynamics in this scene. He's, well, no, uh- because
2: men never stop to think about the gender dynamics in any scene. Okay, because but Har- you don't have to.
0: Hagrid gets, a- Hagrid gets a break here.
2: He gets a break, but I'm just saying that, like... It doesn't occur to dudes when women do their emotional labor for them. Right. I'm gonna give Hagrid a break, but-, but Hagrid also doesn't come back around. Everybody always gives Harry all the credit for everything. First of all,
0: in the Hagrid's defense, he called. He, we just talked about this in the last book episode. He called them out for.
2: You're right. Okay.
0: For not paying attention to Hermione's emotional well being and right. giving her props for.
2: Okay, so. For Hagrid, helping
0: him with, uh, with the Buckbeak case.
2: Hagrid gets a pass. I would still say that Hagrid is complicit in this whole culture that like doesn't give women in this world credit for their emotional labor.
0: Aren't we all complicit?
2: Yeah, you absolutely fucking all are all complicit. Um, but I think the flip side of that is how much credit Hermione gets for these like expressly and explicitly masculine acts that aren't that useful punching Malfoy doesn't actually do anything except that her Harry and Ron are like damn Hermione holy shit I can't believe you went for it and it's like Hermione has like low key helped them like get one up on Malfoy so many times in these books Hermione makes the fucking polyjuice potion yeah and this is the only time they're like damn what hermione (laughs) and it's because she uses this like explicitly masculine form of control and coercion and i think that's misogynistic i just do i don't think that it's like hateful but i think that there's like a lot of upsetting gender dynamics at play in the way that all of the male characters treat hermione in this whole fucking book so
0: do you think uh Rowling is trying to say something with that, or is that just kind of a reflection of her experiences and what she's observed in the world?
2: I think she's... I mean, I think that you can't parse those two things out. Okay. Like, I think by including those details, she's making a point about what it feels like to be a woman who is often silently undergirding men's emotions and experiences... And the weird kind of credit you get when you, like, break that mold. I mean, I think certainly J.K. Rowling is the kind of person that has had that experience. Yeah. Like, women are only seen as heroic when they take on traditionally masculine heroic roles. And, like, there isn't a lot of narrative around heroism for the ways in which, like, more traditionally or stereotypically feminine. With the exception of motherhood, which is some more patriarchal bullshit but we won't even get into that but I think that the narrative around mothers as heroes because that's that's the male we'll get let's be real um I actually don't think the narrative of mothers as heroes is like counteracts this at all but yeah I think JK Rowling certainly as having written the first one of these books as a single poor mother knows that it's really really hard to get credit for your unseen emotional labor as a woman and that you have to be like kicking ass and taking names in this like lean in act like a man be a boss bitch way in order to like be seen as like powerful and part of the part of the conversation and that like women transgressing female norms is the only way women get attention for their acts. Yeah I think JK Rowling absolutely fucking literally knows that. So sorry, that was just a straight up rant. But I, I think these scenes are really sexist. But not, I don't think J.K. Rowling is writing sexist scenes. I think she's writing scenes that pull out mm. a lot of really subtle sexism against Hermione. So that's that.
0: You're back in full force this week, Heather.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Got some The Opposite of R&R and here I am.
0: <laughs> so speaking of injustice, let's move on to social justice, For hippogriffs. Let's. Let's do that. Yo, the wizard legal system is fucked up.
2: Oh, yeah. It makes no sense.
0: Well, I mean, for one thing, they put animals on trial, which we kind of discussed earlier. But let's just revisit this. They put animals on trial.
2: Yeah. You and I talked before we started recording about how bizarre it is to call the person who is called in to put an animal down the executioner. Because, like... Muggles do this. Dogs that bite people or, like, animals that hurt people, especially, like, in, like, domestic animals, get put down.
0: But we don't have them executed.
2: Right. It's just the <laughs> the semantics of that are super-duper bizarre because what it says to me is that the animal bears some, like, moral culpability and that this is, like, a punishment.
0: Well, in the wizarding world, I, they do seem—wizards do— do seem to recognize a level of intelligence and agency in creatures that Muggles don't. Yeah, because like Buckbeak, Buckbeak doesn't possess like human intelligence, but he does have.
2: Yeah, he's not a dumb animal.
0: Right, he he has. He's a smart. He's a smart animal.
2: Well, and um, he, he makes decisions, yeah. and he made a decision to hurt Malfoy because of Malfoy's behavior toward him. Which I guess means, yeah, I guess he has some moral culpability for his actions.
0: Kind of, but they also seem to be held to a way higher standard. Yeah. Because they're considered dangerous. Well, yeah, they're considered dangerous.
2: Well, they also, I mean, this is like basics of like our criminal justice system, like, they can't speak for themselves. Right.
0: And uh, apparently you can't hire someone to speak
2: for you. Oh, yeah, that's so, the other thing. The main, it's, yeah, it's, the... all, it's like deprofessionalized law.
0: Yeah, there's no lawyers in the wizarding world for some reason. Like, Hagrid can't obtained representation for himself and Buckbeak.
2: So he has these three 13-year-olds, like, law clerking for him. Yeah,
0: digging into case law, which apparently there's mounds and mounds of case law. Just in
2: the school library. (laughs) Like, it's not even a, it's like a primary and secondary school. Like, it's not a law school, and yet they can find these, like, these incredibly, like, ancient Codes about like hippogriff behavior.
0: There's like Blackst. Is it Blackstone's commentaries? I've read
2: some commentaries on hippogriff justice. Like, yeah, there's
0: like commentaries. Uh, <laughs> they're reading.
2: I gotta say, weirdly, court like court
0: decisions. Harry,
2: Rod and Hermione like would be decent Muggle lawyers. Yeah, they're, after, they're going after about this, their research like pretty efficiently. I'm kind of impressed.
0: They're getting well grounded in wizard common law.
2: I mean, because nobody else is there to do it, which is insane. <laughs> because it also doesn't seem like Malfoy doesn't have a lawyer either.
0: No, he just represents, everybody represents themselves.
2: Right. So, yeah, it's, well, we talked about this, I forget what profession we were talking about, but we've talked about it before. Doctors. Like, Oh, yeah, doctors. Medicine. This is, again, very medieval. Everything, all of these um things that we now have, like, codified, are, like, super-duper deprofessionalized in the wizarding world, which is why, like, none of their systems work very well. The
0: only white-collar jobs are for, like, teacup regulators?
2: Right, exactly. They have crazy amounts of regulation and, like, no jobs.
0: Which, what are they even regulating, then?
2: Cauldron-bottom thickness. (laughs) Literally. Well, okay, so here's the other thing. There's been
0: no lawyers to challenge any of these regulations, which has allowed regulatory overreach.
2: Yeah I think that's probably true no lawyer is like the government shouldn't be spending its time writing like massive dissertations on cauldron bottoms (laughs) or like I mean clearly like no lawyer ever even took like a minor pass at any of Arthur Weasley's laws because he writes his own loopholes in (laughs) so the government doesn't have any lawyers to be like this won't hold up. I just want you to know this can't be a law.
0: So that aspect of it is, is kind of silly when you dig into it, but I think what's so powerful about this pair of chapters is uh, the trio's encounters with what passes for official, official justice, and it's not a good experience.
1: It's from Hagrid, said Harry, ripping the note open. Buckbeak's appeal. It's set for the sixth. That's the day we finish our exams said Hermione, still looking everywhere for her arithmancy book. And they're coming up here to do it, said Harry, still reading from the letter. Someone from the Ministry of Magic and—and an executioner. Hermione looked up, startled. They're bringing the executioner to the appeal? But that sounds as though they've already decided. Yeah, it does, said Harry slowly. They can't. Ron howled. I've spent ages reading up on stuff for him. They can't just ignore it all. But Harry had a horrible feeling that the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures had had its mind made up for it by Mr. Malfoy.
2: There's a couple of different places where Ron or Hermione or Harry says like, what? They can't do that. They can't just kill him. And it's like, they can and they will, you guys.
0: Yeah, well, Ron at one point says, this is not justice. Right. So... It takes it it's a really dim and cynical view of Western courts, basically.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's a wrong view, but it is dim and cynical. And I do I think it's a really important moment, especially for Ron. Because of the three, Ron is the only one that's not an outsider in the wizarding world mm-hmm. in some way. So it's Ron's realization that the wizarding world isn't safe or fair, I think is the most startling. So to me, it's the most important character development for him. And you're right. He has the most interesting line, which is just this isn't justice. And Harry and Hermione are kind of like, yeah, well, we think everything in the wizarding world is kind of bananas. But Ron is like, I kind of grew up believing that like we as a people did what was right yeah. and being fairly, I mean, I think at least like in the back of his mind, like pretty anti-Muggle. Like Ron certainly doesn't think. Or at least
0: think- kind of like. Soft bigotry yeah, against muggles. exactly.
2: Like, muggles don't know what they're doing. But this is Ron's, like, kind of one of the early moments where Ron looks around himself and says, like, wow, this shit really doesn't work. Yeah. So, and I think that's a really relatable moment for muggle readers.
0: I, I Yeah, I think it's a shattering experience when you come up against... If you've kind of grown up in relative safety and privilege, when you first realize... Like when the state is about to do something that you know is wrong and you're like, is this really happening? Is this going to happen? Can they do that?
2: And I think this is another place where the sort of anti-muggle racism analogs work because you have this Hermione-Ron pairing where Ron would be the stand-in for like a white, character um, or a character from like a high-ish socioeconomic background who has never had to think about the fact that the world might not work the way it's supposed to or be fair. And Hermione is entering this world as a minority and as a person facing like relative oppression Probably I mean not on the same level that like people of color face in this country, but still like Hermione understands that there is a lot of wrongness in the wizarding world. And so she's less surprised by this.
0: She's still surprised though. She's she's shows some some no, doubts, yeah. I
2: know, but I think Ron's surprise cuts more to the core and Hermione is just like right. isn't it Hermione that says like it sounds like they've already made up their minds? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Does, Hermione
2: is kind of the first one to call out, like, "I don't think this is going to work out the way we want it to." And Ron is the one that's still very, very much like, "No, like if we do the work, right. it will be okay." yeah,
0: and that's that's a powerful lesson in a book uh, for this uh, for this age group. So right. you, you can be right, you could be morally right, and it's still like sometimes it doesn't matter.
2: often. It doesn't matter. In these books, often it doesn't matter.
0: The heroes of these books accomplish almost nothing by going through official channels, basically. You're
2: right, in any of Uh, these.
0: Nothing more. There's almost no moral result from... uh,
2: Just like doing the right proper... Not not doing the right thing, but doing the thing that goes up the chain of command that was designed for that.
0: Right. No. It's, it's, It's a very cynical view of authority.
2: And you know, the other thing is, this scene with Buckbeak, it's actually a beautiful mirror because it sets up... The revelation about Sirius really nicely. Right. Because I also think it primes all three characters in this really deliberate and delicate way to be able to accept that Sirius was also falsely accused.
0: Right. Because that is never even a come into their minds. No, at this it point. hasn't.
2: But the fact, and it, you know, we're about to move into those scenes. Like this is the very last chapter before we meet. Serious black in the f- in the flesh.
0: Yeah, this chapter almost feels like the cr- you know the cranking you hear going up like the roller coaster because yeah. the end of this book is crazy.
2: But I think that these scenes with Buckbeak prepare the hearts and minds of our like main trio to see the world for what it really is and to believe serious because they've just watched the justice system utterly fail an innocent being and so now they have the ability to s- follow that logic.
0: Wow that is so masterfully structured.
2: I know it's beautiful it's incredibly well made I mean it's like just this extraordinary like kind of building block where hearing Buckbeak get get executed comes at the exact right time to plant in all three of their minds like The right thing doesn't always or even usually happen. So perhaps when we have somebody telling us a crazy story about the wrong thing happening, like we can take that into consideration at the very least. We can listen because we just watched this horrendous injustice get committed. So maybe that is a real thing. Because, you know, for a long time, actually, until this reading, I didn't understand what the Buckbeat plot was about other than... It being sort of a fun addition to the last crazy chapters of this book. But I think the purpose of the Buckbeak plot is to prime the pump for Harry, Ron, and Hermione to accept Sirius's innocence. Wow. Because they've just experienced this like gross miscarriage of justice.
0: Yeah, that really makes me appreciate these chapters Ugh. and just yeah, the Joe, overall structure of this book.
2: God damn, you're good. God, you're good. Okay, yeah, it's it's structured, like, extraordinarily.
0: Yo, how many times has Cornelius Fudge personally fucked over Hagrid? This is the second book in a row where oh, I Cornelius know. I actually, comes down. It's like, hey, gotta kill your best friend now, dog. Remember that time I sent you to Azkaban?
2: <laughs> Hagrid is actually, like, throughout the books, a really popular stand-in for just, like, injustice against oppressed people. Like, horrible shit happens to Hagrid all the time. And it's like, Hagrid is this one character who, like, stands in for all of these different, like, intersections of, oh my like, God. injustice. And
0: Hagrid went to a bar with Fudge earlier in the book.
2: Yeah. Fudge does not give a shit. Fudge says unpleasant business. Fudge <laughs> doesn't give a shit what he's doing to Hagrid.
0: Hagrid's so forgiving.
2: Yeah, Hagrid's, like, too forgiving.
0: Maybe. I just, like, it's cr- Fudge shows up to oversee the
2: his pet's death. Fudge what? is not a good guy.
0: No. Fudge
2: is a bad leader and a bad man. But man. we're going to see way more of that in the next couple of books. Let's talk about Trelawney's prediction and what that says about Trelawney.
1: Professor Trelawney didn't seem to hear him. Her eyes started to roll. Harry sat there in a panic. She looked as though she was about to have some sort of seizure. He hesitated, thinking of running to the hospital wing, and then Professor Trelawney spoke again, in the same harsh voice, quite unlike her own. The Dark Lord lies alone and friendless, abandoned by his followers. His servant has been chained these twelve years. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will break free and set out to rejoin his master. The Dark Lord will rise again with his servant's aid, greater and more terrible than ever he was. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will set out to rejoin his master. Professor Trelawney's head fell forward onto her chest. She made a grunting sort of noise. How he sat there staring at her. Then, quite suddenly, Professor Trelawney's head snapped up again. I'm, I'm so sorry, dear boy, she said dreamily. The heat of the day, you know. I drifted off for a moment.
0: So, I mean, she's right.
2: Right, and it's real. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's interesting how different the quality of the delivery of the real prediction is from her just like airy, fairy, bug eyed bullshit the rest of the book. For one thing, I mean not this is not the most important thing, but it's like proof that she's bullshitting. Yeah. Because the way in which she delivers an actual prediction is super extreme and intense and like Harry's like, Holy shit, what's happening right now? It like doesn't having a have, seizure.
0: Doesn't seem to have much to do with anything she does in the rest of her life. No, she doesn't remember it. Right.
2: And she says that she would never suppose to predict something that extreme.
0: Yeah, so...
2: Which, that's crazy because she's been predicting this young boy's death for a year.
0: She's just sort of this vessel for whatever this cosmic force is that drops truth bombs uh, on the universe through her.
2: Clearly they should cancel divination as a class. (laughs) This does not seem taught. Having a trance and saying some crazy shit that you can't remember doesn't seem like an academic subject.
0: Well, <laughs> you're in the you're firmly in the McGonagall Hermione camp. I'm
2: not there. look, again, yeah. back to this argument from before. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm just saying like whatever Professor Trelawney just did, she didn't learn how to do. Yeah,
0: she's a crappy teacher.
2: It's a crappy subject. And I guess crappy subject. You're either a but... medium or you aren't. All right. She but... got the she got the Hermione thing right. No, but that's just like the same, that's confirmation bias. Too broad, yeah. That's just like, also everybody, she clearly meant someone was going to (laughs) die. No, she lucked into that shit. She was clearly (laughs) predicting Harry's death and Hermione just like accidentally fulfilled the timing.
0: She's so morbid when she's encouraging Harry to describe like the hippogriff death. Oh my god, she super uh, is. It's like, what's her deal?
2: But here's another thing that's totally amazing about the plot structure of this book is like, it sounds like she's talking about Sirius. Yeah. Like when she gives, I mean, I know, sorry, that's obvious. But when she gives that prediction, like it sounds like she is talking about Sirius Black is going to come back tonight. So when they see him, it's like, oh my God, she was right. He's back. Holy shit. And then it's like so much crazier than that even, but she's still right. I just think it's structured nicely.
0: Very nice, Scabbers. I what guess. the fuck? Scabbers is back. Uh, Ron doesn't seem to react to that strongly to Scabbers' miraculous return.
2: I mean, it's not that miraculous. He was a rat. He might have died. He might not have. They didn't like find the carcass. I'm
0: surprised. Why didn't Why didn't Scabbers just bail? Why is he hanging out in a milk jug?
2: I don't actually know. I think we. Th- Find that out in right. the next chapter, right. well, but whatever. I don't remember exactly why Scabbers doesn't just like run away. Yeah, I think it's because Crookshanks is like tracking him.
0: Right. All right. So Scabbers is back, rat bastard.
2: But he's he's not Scabbers. But that's well, we'll talk about that next time. It's funny how badly Ron wants to keep him. Like we talked about this at the beginning of the episode, but that whole scene where he's like, "Wait, I can't get him in my pocket." It's like, okay, let him fucking go. He's disgusting. <laughs> like. Losing that's the only part of this like plot that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm just like, why is Ron so into scabbers? I'm imagining
0: open sores.
2: Ew. It's like I had this cat until actually bonkers recently because she lived to be like almost 30. Um, <laughs> Named Ashley Bell, who we found in a Basha's parking lot. Oh, people don't know what Basha's is. That's like that's a grocery store that's only in Arizona. And anyway, we found her in a Basha's parking lot. Um, where I grew up and she lived to be like a thousand in cat years and she was vile by the time she died like she had all this like she couldn't stop drooling, and she had all these like sores, and she would still like need you. And she had these gross, like really sharp but kind of crumbly claws. Oh, I liked her. She came in was my friend for a minute. She's a she was a really it, like she was like a a kind of like friendly cat, but she was foul, and that's how I'm thinking about Scabbers. <laughs> no, she was a good girl. Like I actually kind of miss Ashley Bell, but she was disgusting by the end of her life, and I'm imagining Scabbers like Ashley. It's a gross,
0: Bell. the The illustration is kind of gross. It is. Scabbers I actually, is I posted
2: like, it on Instagram, so if you guys want to see what the illustration of Scabbers looks like, a uh, little plug.
0: Scabbers is gaunt.
2: Yeah, Scabbers is having a hard time. Yeah. Which, like, Scabbers, it turns out, deserves.
0: Uh, quick quibble. So, they learn cheering charms in these chapters, and... Why don't they use those more often? Because some depressing shit happens in these books. Yo, Professor Flitwick, go down to Hagrid's hut and use a cheering charm on him. The dude could use some cheering up.
2: Yeah, it's like you guys basically have, like, antidepressants. Full proof,
0: immediate antidepressants.
2: But it's not like the effect is lingering. Right. It's more like a brief escape. It's more like a Xanax oh, than okay. like an antidepressant. Because it wears off. Yeah. Um, but still, yeah. It's like, why don't these ever make an appearance again?
0: Yeah. Well, like, you see, there's some like that happens with like some spells and right. uh, it's kind of
2: it's dumb. Yeah, it's it's funny and dumb. They
0: drop in as a joke and then they're not really like mentioned again.
2: Right. It is actually really cute when Harry goes a little hard on his cheering charm in the exam and they have to put Ron in like a rubber room to like calm down for an hour because he's like laughing hysterically. <laughs> That's a cute scene. Oh, they have exams. Oh, I, there's not really it, anything to say about It's still
0: stifling hot. There's no air conditioning. They can't use a cooling charm. I just, They don't seem to use their magic that often.
2: No. They seem to use their way. magic sort of startlingly unoften and only for like really brief periods of like comfort as opposed to for like lo- I guess that's one of the things Richard talked about last week <laughs> but they do have this like singular obsession with comfort and like not a lot else um although i guess comfort would mean like maybe air conditioning
0: yeah i just anyway. every, every like the last few times they've had exams harry is always like sweating his balls off
2: don't say balls sorry wait i don't know why
0: sweating his quaffle his quaff i don't know Never
2: mind. <laughs> um, oh there is this really sad scene when Hermione gets like totally tripped up by the Boggart because Professor McGonagall, the, the Boggart takes the form of Professor McGonagall saying that she's failed everything and like it's just sad because she's so psychologically fragile by this point that it like sends her, it's like she goes to pieces and you're just like oh, Ugh. Hermione, like, you need to be a little bit better adjusted because that should not be your boggart. (laughs) Like, if that's your greatest fear, like, A, you're, like, pretty privileged. And B, like, you probably need to think about prioritizing a little. Yeah. It's like in the first movie when Ron goes, she needs to sort out her priorities. And, like, girl, you do.
0: She has a rough third book, I'd say. She does. So who's your unsung hero?
2: Oh, my unsung hero is the giant squid in the lake. He's mentioned in one sentence, but I feel like they're burying the lead of this entire book, which is that they have a giant squid. <laughs> That's awesome. I want to meet him. I want to know more about him. I want one Harry Potter book that is about the life and times of the giant squid.
0: Harry Potter and the giant squid.
2: Hell yeah. Or just the giant squid.
0: Make it happen, Joe. The John. giant
2: squid and where to find him. <laughs> that, I would read that book. That's like one of the weird offshoot books I would actually buy. Fair enough. Who's yours?
0: Mine is Oliver Wood. I just wanted to give him a send-off. This is his big final hurrah. He's such a great minor character. He uh, he achieves his dream. He wins the Quidditch Cup. He's like tears are streaming down his face. He's sobbing uncontrollably. Uh, apparently his game his game plan was uh his game plan was solid. There's not much to it. You have to catch the snitch and win by more than 50, but uh you know I feel like he's one of the few characters who comes into these books, gets what he wants and just like leaves in a blaze of glory.
2: Yeah, does he come back?
0: I you know, I don't
2: I don't even remember if he's at like the Battle of Hogwarts.
0: Yeah, please remind us uh, what happens to Wood if anybody remembers, but I think I think this is Wood's
2: It's certainly Wood's his last call. like yeah, it is it's it's his last like major outing in these books. He's so funny. I actually, I do end up really missing Wood. Wood is a great, um, he's also like a great mentor to Harry because he basically treats Harry like he's only good for one thing, which is Quidditch, which is kind of relaxing for Harry because he <laughs> does, he briefly doesn't have to be like famous slash the chosen one. Yeah,
0: well, Wood, and, Wood is, Wood is more on the same page with Wood than like anybody else on the team, really.
2: Oh, Harry yeah. and Wood have
0: a lot in common. They're really competitive. And really and- single-minded. Mm-hmm.
2: And Wood's relationship with McGonagall, like, let's just shout that out one more time. They have a love that will never die. And it's, it's pure. And it's so sweet and pure. And they they sort of, like, I don't know.
0: She's sopping as hard as he is. She
2: is harder. Rowling says harder. Yeah. So, so
0: psyched to win that. Uh,
2: she's really proud of him. And that's nice. He deserves that. They deserve each other's just, like, total joy.
0: Do you think Wood goes into, like, kind of has this letdown or, like, spirals into a sort of depression because he's been going after this one thing that he wants more than anything? Like, what's Wood's life purpose after this?
2: I actually can see, yes, first of all, I bet Wood spirals for a while. Like, this seems like, it seems, I think it's hard to be, I mean, that's why we said peaking early. (laughs) as an adult theme like it's hard to achieve your greatest goal as like a 19 year old because like then what but i can see him being like a motivational speaker like can't you see him being like the wizarding version of like richard simmons yeah like a sort of sports guru slash just like make your own life yours kind of guy i can that seems like a job that wizards would actually really gravitate toward and i can see him being really good at it
0: woods driven he's really motivating He's going to do fine yeah. after graduation. I feel good
2: about you, Wood. I hope Voldemort doesn't murder him. I don't actually remember, but that feels possible. So, like, if so, like, R.I.P. Wood.
0: He almost certainly died in Cursed Child.
2: Oh, God, they all did.
0: Because Jesus. Ever- <laughs>
2: um. <laughs> that's
0: just her excuse to kill off everyone who she didn't get around to killing in the first uh, seven books.
2: Um. All right. So that's it.
0: Yeah. This week's episode is brought to you by... The Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures. A 100% conviction rate since I'd probably like the 1300s. I don't know.
2: We'll kill your pets for you. Yeah. The audio clips you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Please rate and review us. Please, please, please rate and review us. Actually, here's a little challenge. We have 42 ratings right now on good old iTunes and we have 27 reviews. It would be absolutely the coolest in the universe if we could get up to 50 ratings and 30 reviews by like in two weeks you know by the middle of the month I guess toward the end of the month by then so if eight of you who haven't yet can go and give us five stars and if just three of you who haven't yet can go and leave a short and sweet review, um, that would be awesome. And we will do something celebratory to celebrate that. I don't know what, but it'll be we'll do something fun on one of the episodes when we get to those numbers. Yeah. Um, we'll like tell you something weird, or I don't know, do something special. Just fifty and thirty we'll are the magic numbers. We'll
0: personally, cake can describe its flavors and or I mean, issues.
2: we'll call you out for sure, and you know. I'll, like, make Alex sing you guys a song or something. I will. No, you might... That might not be that fun for... It might be fun for only me.
0: His eyes are as green (laughs) as a fresh pickled toe.
2: All of that is to say, please rate and review us on iTunes. Please also subscribe to the podcast. Uh, We're also on social media, Twitter and Instagram. We are at Quibbler Podcast on both of those places.
0: There's a newsletter, tinyletter.com slash Quibbler Podcast. And we actually... Didn't go a month between newsletters uh, in the last week. So
2: Overall, we're getting a little better, you know, better at this. It's, so thanks uh, for sticking with us. Yeah,
0: we're getting our podcast legs underneath us.
2: Next week's chapters, so good, are cat, rat, and dog. And Mooney, wormtail, padfoot, and prongs.
0: Cats and dogs living together.
2: Mass hysteria. Thanks,
1: amigos. You cheating scum! Lee Jordan was howling into the megaphone, dancing out of Professor McGonagall's reach. You filthy, cheating bitch! It was turning into the dirtiest game Harry had ever played in.